So if you would like to open your Bibles, find your way there on your devices, it's Daniel chapter 4 today as we study the book of Daniel together. Very early in our marriage, um, it might even have been before we were married, but I'm pretty sure it was early in our marriage, Steph cross-stitched a verse of scripture. It's a thing, cross-stitching, and she framed it, and it is in my office to this day, and the verse reads like this. It's Psalm 115. It says, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory because of your loving kindness, because of your truth. And if there is a verse that captures the lesson that God was teaching to King Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 4, that he wants to teach us in chapter 4 of the book of Daniel, it's hard to find one that captures it better. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give the glory. I don't remember exactly why Steph uh, gave me that verse. Maybe she knew that I would need it desperately. Um, But I realized this morning, I'm probably not the only one in the room who needs to be reminded of this humble truth. Um, Today, as we're going to see, pride is on grand display in Daniel 4 in the life of King Nebuchadnezzar. And it may not be confined to the pages of Daniel 4 this morning. It may very, very well be on display in the pages of your life too. And if so, God is speaking to you this morning through Daniel chapter 4. C.S. Lois wrote a masterpiece on pride in his book, um, in one of his books. I'll post it for you this week. Um, <laughs> Mere Christianity, that's what it is. Um, I'll post it for you to read. I'll quote from it this morning. It starts like this. According to Christian teachers, the essential vice, the utmost evil is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. Add to that these words from one of our great uh, theologians of the past, Jonathan Edwards. It says, pride is the main door by which the devil comes into the hearts of those who are zealous for the advancement of religion. Tis the chief inlet of smoke from the bottomless pit to darken the mind and mislead the judgment. This is the main handle by which the devil takes hold of religious persons and the chief source of all the mischief that he introduces to clog and hinder a work of God. This cause of error is the mainspring, or at least the main support of all the rest. Till this disease is cured, medicines are in vain applied to heal all other diseases. So, how about we pray real quick before we talk about this important matter? All right, let's pray. Lord Jesus, have mercy on us, your prideful people, and in your kindness, humble us today. By your word and by your spirit, we ask. Amen. All right, so Daniel chapter 4 is kind of structured unusually. It is what we would call a doxology sandwich. And by that I mean it starts and it ends with a truly remarkable declaration of praise to, to Yahweh, to the one true God, the God of Scripture. And the singer of these two short songs of praise is none other than King Nebuchadnezzar himself. 
Listen to his opening and closing words in chapter 4. King Nebuchadnezzar to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell on the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. Then if you go all the way to the end, verse 34. At the end of days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Think about it for a moment. These are King Nebuchadnezzar's own words. He's writing these praise choruses, right? This chapter reads like his personal testimony. It's largely in his voice. There must be some pretty amazing meat in the middle of this sandwich to cause this polytheistic king who worships many gods to bust out in praise not once, but twice, of the one true God. And if you want to add to the wonder of it, this is the last we'll hear of King Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel. These are, in a sense, his last words, so to speak. Now, the passage is lengthy, and I'm going to summarize it for us this morning. So let me encourage you, this afternoon, part of your Mother's Day celebration Have a leisurely read of Daniel chapter 4. It's worth it. But this morning, due to time issues, I'm going to summarize it for you. This is the Cliff Notes version. King Nebuchadnezzar has a scary dream. It involves a massive tree that reaches to heaven. An angelic being called a watcher declares that that tree is to be chopped down and only the stump will remain. Then the tree kind of evolves into a man who then becomes a cow or at least acts like one for a very long time. And as is par for the course in Daniel, the king's spiritual advisors can't interpret this dream, but you can guess who can. Yep, Daniel can interpret the dream. And he explains to King Nebuchadnezzar that he is that great tree that is about to be chopped down. So let's pick up on the story all the way down in verse 26. Okay. So Daniel is talking to King Nebuchadnezzar here and he says, it, and as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, King Nebuchadnezzar, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. So he's saying your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of his royal palace of Babylon, and the king answered, he's talking to himself here, and said, Is not this the great Babylon? which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty. And while the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, 
O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. And you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And immediately the word of God was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox. And his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers, and his nails were like bird's claws. Okay? So that's the gist of of the story that's before us. But I want to walk back through it and underscore a few things from the meat of King Nebuchadnezzar's sandwich, as it were, okay? First, a couple of things about Nebuchadnezzar that we need to keep in mind. Nebuchadnezzar is the man, right? He is a king like no king before him, and he has built in Babylon a city and an empire like no king before him. Babylon was this huge rectangular city. It's been described like this. It had an intricate city of of internal wall, of external walls, double walls, surrounded eventually by double walls. The height of those double walls has been guesstimated as high as 40 feet high. And the exterior of those double walls was wide enough that two chariots could pass each other. There was a 400-foot-long bridge. Now, remember when this is. This is a long, long time ago. 400-foot-long bridge across across the river, the Euphrates. And the main street was 1,000 yards long, paved with imported stone. Um, Nebuchadnezzar enjoyed at least three palaces there had constructed the famous hanging gardens so his wife could enjoy a taste of her native country which she left for the flatlands of Babylon. Um, No wonder, one writer says, all of this had Nebuchadnezzar talking to himself. It contained two, Babylon contained two of the seven wonders of the ancient world, those hanging gardens and those amazing, impressive defensive walls. So first thing, At this point in history, Nebuchadnezzar is the man, right? But what you need to realize, the second thing you need to realize about Nebuchadnezzar is he is the man and he knows he's the man, right? Look look again at verse 29 and 30. At the end of 12 months, Nebuchadnezzar's walking on the roof of the royal palace um, of Babylon and the king answered, he's talking to himself and he says, is this not, it's not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence for the glory of my majesty? You know, there's a whole lot of I and my in that statement, right? You pick up on it? We could safely say at this point that Psalm 115 verse 1 is not the king's favorite Bible verse, right? He is a proud man. And with this statement of his, the contest is on. Okay? We've seen contests throughout the chapters, uh, the early chapters of the book of Daniel between the God of the Bible and the gods of Babylon, and it's on here. And because God, God is about to put King Nebuchadnezzar in his appropriate place, because even though King Nebuchadnezzar is king over what's arguably the greatest empire in the entire world at this time, maybe even in the history of the world up until this point in time, we see that our God, as we just sang, is greater still. 
And so let's shift from Nebuchadnezzar and think about a few things that this passage teaches us about our God that are really essential for us this morning. The first is simply that, our God is greater. Four times in this chapter, often on the lips of Nebuchadnezzar himself, we hear this declaration, God is the most high God. By a polytheist, multiple God-worshiping guy, God is the most high guy. And three times, Nebuchadnezzar's testimony records that God rules over the kingdoms of men. Listen to verse 17. As the dream is told, the sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets it over the lowliest of men. And there's another declaration that you heard earlier where it says he will regain his sanity when he acknowledges that heaven rules. The greatest of kings is reduced to acting like a cow okay? or, or maybe an ox, which is not a whole lot more flattering. Right? As case in point of this kind of greatness of our God by comparison. Professor Dale Davis says human governments are interim arrangements that God appoints to fill space until the power and glory of Jesus' kingdom. Human rulers, tyrannical or democratic, are God's lackeys who have tenure only at his pleasure. So should our political leaders fail us or even persecute us, we find encouragement as these captive people did here. Our God is greater. But the passage also realizes, or shows us that not only is God greater, he's also merciful. And you hear it in Daniel's initial reaction to the dream when he understands what it means. Back in verse 19, Daniel, also called Belteshazzar, answers the king and says, My Lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. The compassion of God is heard on the lips of Daniel for this man. We see it in this, in, down in verse 28 and 29, this 12-month delay. It says, All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar at the end of 12 months when he was walking on the roof. Why wasn't Nebuchadnezzar judged immediately for his arrogance? As one writer put it, um, mercy loves delays. And the mercy of God is being shown here, and it's supremely on display in the king's restoration after his insanity. Look at how the chapter ends down in verse 36. At the same time, Nebuchadnezzar says that my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride... He is able to humble. Okay. That, little, that last little phrase is essentially the moral of the story, right? Those who walk in pride, God is able to humble. 
And that's the last thing I'll underscore from our passage about our God. And I want us to think about what it means for us a bit more together. He will humble those who walk in pride. He's the greatest of kings. He's merciful, but he will brook no pride. None of it. It's a thing he hates. The wise writer of the book of Proverbs simply puts it this way. I hate pride and arrogance. And God judges it with a sobering predictability. Again, Proverbs says, everyone who's arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured, he will not go unpunished. Be assured of this. And C.S. Lewis, again, in that masterful work, tells us why God is so harsh with respect to pride when he writes, the Christians are right. It is pride which has been the chief cause of misery in every nation and every family since the world began. Other vices may sometimes bring people together. You may find good fellowship and jokes and friendliness among drunken people or unchaste people. But pride always means enmity. It is enmity. And not only enmity between man and man, but enmity to God. And then he adds this, for pride is spiritual cancer. It eats up the very possibility of love or contentment or even common sense. Now, at this point, you might be tempted to think, whew, man, I'm glad I'm not proud. I am really glad. I'm feeling pretty good about the fact that I'm not proud. I'm kind of proud of the fact that I'm not proud. You can see where it goes. But if that's you, I'm going to turn to Craigslist now. Um, not that Craigslist, but Craig Morissette, who runs Hope Counseling here, his list of the way that pride shows up in our life. Listen, see if you hear yourself. This is just, this is just a sampling. A lack of gratitude. Anger. Seeing yourself as better than others. Perfectionism. Talking too much. Seeking independence or control, being consumed with what others think, being devastated or angered by criticism, being unteachable, being sarcastic, a lack of service, a lack of compassion, being defensive, a lack of admitting when you were wrong, a lack of asking forgiveness, a lack of prayer. Need I continue? There are 30 of them on Craigslist, Craig Morissette's list. See, pride lies at the root of most of the divisiveness in the church. Even when the division is about matters of doctrine and such, pride makes sure that the breach cannot be healed. It lies behind most, if not all, divisive posts on social media. It lies beneath broken relationships that lie unmended because pride forbids taking the first step or persevering and taking it again and again if need be. Church splits are often, if not always, linked to pride. Broken friendships are too. Pride is toxic to the church. And tragically, it often finds its way in through her leaders. To be honest... When things get tense in one of our elder meetings, it doesn't happen very often, but when it happens, pride is likely at play.
And the great sorrow is that it's off to my own. So if you're willing to pray for our leaders and you don't know how, especially for me, pray against pride and for a great Christ-like humility. And I'm going to give you a chance to do that as a church in just a minute. I'll explain it to you. But there is something absolutely fascinating that I want to show you back in our chapter that Nebuchadnezzar says the language he uses in that opening doxology. Look at it with me again in verse 2. He says, it has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. He doesn't say what he has done to me. He says what he has done for me. The guy spent maybe as much as seven years thinking he was a cow. And he says, God did this for me. And he understands now what we often do not, how terrible pride is and how kind it is when God humbles us. So please pray this kindness of humility for our leaders. See, before King Nebuchadnezzar was humbled, he was a kind of antichrist. Not necessarily the antichrist, but a kind of antichrist because nothing is more anti-Jesus than pride. Nothing. The Apostle Paul famously said that we are to have this mind among ourselves, which is ours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And immediately before this, Paul gives us this somber exhortation. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant or more important than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. This is the way of Jesus. You cannot follow him and be proud. You cannot. And so what I'd like to share with you now are three simple daily practices that help me fight against pride. Um, they are simple. They are daily. And they provide a helpful hedge against pride. Um, they are praying for mercy, giving thanks, and confessing sin. If, if those three things will mark your days, you will begin to see improvement, I guarantee you, in the fight against pride. Praying for mercy is simply acknowledging our need for God and asking for his help throughout the day. This helps us be mindful of how much we need God, even in the small things. It helps us let God be God and not us. And so we say, God have mercy on me as I enter this meeting, as I enter this conversation, as I deal with this child, as I go to school, as I do my work. God have mercy, I need your mercy, I need your help. Giving thanks is just what it sounds like. Pausing throughout your day and especially at day's end to thank God for his kindnesses to you that day, big and small. This helps us put Psalm 115.1 into practice. Not to us, O oh Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory for all good that came this day. There's a phrase in Latin. It says, soli deo gloria. 
To God alone be the glory. And confessing sin is the third way. The daily confession of sin reminds us of our great need for God and the mercy Jesus brings to us through the cross. It crushes the illusion that we're somehow good enough, that we're okay without Jesus. May it never be. And there, there, uh, embarrassingly, there were seasons in my life when these three practices were not mine daily and my pride flourished. But now I need these things every day to fight against this great and terrible sin. So I commend those to you. But I'd like today to close this time with a different approach to prayer, a different shape of it. Um, In a moment, I'm going to ask our leaders, our elders and deacons and deaconesses and small group leaders and ministry coordinators and such and their spouses if they're married, um, to come forward here uh, in the front and kneel and then church, you're going to pray for them against pride and for Christ-like humility. And I'll put three different verses on the screen and I'll read them to you. There'll be prompts for your prayer. And so if you are here alone, you can buddy up with a family that's near you or just pray quietly on your own. If you're in a family, you might want to have different people pray about each of the three prompts, but I would encourage you to pray aloud there with someone near you and ask these mercies on our leaders. And then when, when you've prayed for our leaders, I'm going to ask our leaders to get up and kind of um, space out in the aisles around the room, and they're going to pray three different scripture prompts on the same focus, killing pride and growing humility for you, for our, our church family here together. So I know that's a little different, but I, I hope it will be helpful for us. So if you're a leader, if you're a deacon or an elder or a deaconess or a ministry coordinator or a small group leader, or you're any, you lead anything and you want prayer about pride, come down now, and I'd like to ask you to kneel if you're able right down here in front. So if you would, come on forward. Your spouses are more than encouraged and welcome in this as well. And just spread out down here however you can. And church, I'll I'll read the scriptural prompts. After each one, I'll give you a minute to pray. Someone can pray in your family or with your friends who are near you. And we're going to pray for our leaders against pride and in favor of Christ's humility. So let's pray. Here's the first prompt. Jesus said, the greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. And whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Okay, let's pray. Just take a moment and pray that someone near you for our leaders. Let's pray. Apostle Paul says, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Pray this for our leaders.
Again, Paul writes, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more important than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Pray that for our leaders.